You're listening to the Entrepreneur Podcast from the Western Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. Ivy alum Denise Edwards will anchor this session. Melissa Serifedine has a number of roles and titles on her profile. One of them is lifelong student, and it's definitely fitting. As co-founder and CEO of Ladies Learning Code and Canada Learning Code, lifelong learning is integral to her founder's journey. Since 2011, over 700,000 Canadians from all walks of life have had the opportunity to learn critical skills and build up the confidence to become builders, not just consumers, of technology in an increasingly digital world. In this episode, we talk about her story and her passion for entrepreneurship, education, and technology. Well, thank you again, Melissa, for joining us today. It's so awesome to have you here. And I know that the students are really excited to kind of hear about your journey and everything that you've done with Canada Learning Code. So I'd love to kind of hear from you. Yesterday, we were talking a lot about with the students really just starting from the beginning with entrepreneurship. So what was it for you that really encouraged that entrepreneurial spark? And what was it that kind of started you down your journey? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. Thanks. Great to see so many of you um, to talk about my favorite topic. Um, for me, I it's hard to pinpoint exactly what that moment was, but I ever since I was young, I always just wanted to build and create things. So it was often like, you know, crafts to begin with. And then it was a newsletter for my street where I was charging like 50 cents for an ad. Um, you know, then it kind of became here on campus. I actually started a franchise. I brought a franchise from the U.S. here, was involved in clubs. And so I just always wanted to make things that didn't exist. Um, but it took a long time to realize that that was actually like a career path that you could follow. Um, but I think for me, I was just really driven by this idea of like wanting things um, that that weren't around me, that I wanted to look a particular way. Um, and, you know, I also was really driven by, you know, this idea of you know, creating impact and scale and, you know, just contributing something meaningful. It, it really motivated me and was really, you know, it, it still does to know that people are impacted positively by the things that I'm, you know, contributing. Um, so yeah, it was like from the earliest things I can remember, I've always had this entrepreneurial drive in me. Yeah. I've met with a lot of students that started out with a paper route or a landscaping business or something. So that's really awesome that you kind of had that, that was the start for you. And so you kind of mentioned a couple different things that you did there. And so walk us through how you kind of got from that to how did Canada Learning Code, previously Ladies Learning Code, get started? What was that creation and what did that story look like at the beginning? You know, like I said, I, um, you know, started a newspaper for my street made, you know, 50 cents a month doing that um, in, you know, elementary school, started a school canteen. Um, but also around that time in elementary school, I taught myself to code. Um, so I was building websites and like really basic applications. And I, I see the women in technology back there and AI. So I know there's good representation here. Um, but I, again, I was really driven to build something. Um, so I taught myself to code, made these websites, made a guest book for you know, the, the kids in my class uh, over the summer. Um, okay, so I'm a little bit older than probably most, if not all of you. Uh, so we uh, didn't have really like, um, well, I don't even know if you know what MSN is, but we didn't really have instant communication tools. So the way that we would communicate over the summer is through these guest books, um, these like basically really simple websites where you could leave like asynchronous messages, kind of like a form on Blackboard or Quirkus or, um, you know, any of the platforms you'd use. And so I built one of those, um, you know, really enjoyed creating, you know, went into high school, took computer science wasn't encouraged to take it beyond that first course, even though I quite liked it. And I think I did quite well, um, but I wasn't encouraged. And so I ended up going, you know, to university here, obviously went to business, but those skills were still really relevant along the way. I was actually still using them. So I co-directed the own fashion show, which I think is still on campus, you know, and was involved in tweaking the website, whatever, you know, project I'd sort of create a, an HTML website for it. So I was still building and using those skills. Even after I went to Toronto, I worked in accounting for a bit. I worked for a bunch of early stage startups. Um, but I, you know, then at one point kind of realized the work that I was doing wasn't fulfilling. Um, and I wanted to, yeah, to wanted to kind of really, really fulfill that purpose in me. Uh, so I quit 
that job that I was in in accounting, I started getting involved in the tech community, realized that you know, my skills, although I had taught myself to code, um, were, were really quite out of date. Um, there were, you know, technology moves very quickly. And so I wanted to learn to code again. Um, and that's really where, um, you know, I met the other three co-founders who um, started the organization together. And we just, like, we wanted to learn to code. So we just created workshops to help us learn to code and people really liked them. And 11 years later, here we are, we've taught almost a million people in Canada. We've taught Justin Trudeau. Um, we've had really incredible people support our work, like the CEO of Shopify. Toby was on our board for a period of time. Um, so we've just really created this national movement, all really driven around this problem that we wanted to solve that we had in ourselves. That's such an interesting story. And I love that you shared, because I've talked a lot with students about how it's um, often students will get a job after school and you get some industry experience and that entrepreneurial bug will kind of catch afterwards. So that's really interesting that you did go on and kind of work at an accounting firm and different startups and, and things like that. Yeah. And I think those like foundational skills are so important. And I always tell people, you know, there's some benefit in finding out what you don't want to do. Right. So not only do you acquire all of these skills and experiences and accounting is so relevant in running a business, like, and I think it's, you know, a big reason why we've been successful and been able to kind of keep money in the bank, but you know, you really also figure out what you don't want to do. So I think it, you can't really go wrong. Yeah, for sure. So one thing I wanted to ask about yesterday with all the students here, we spent a lot of time and we did a couple activities and exercises to really hone in on problems and identifying problems that uh, the students were passionate about because at the core of kind of every entrepreneurial venture is a problem that you're solving. Um, so I'd love to hear from you. What was it the problem you kind of alluded to it, but what was it that core problem that you had identified that kind of led to the creation of ladies learning code? Yeah, great question. I'll get there. I guess I'll just underscore how important that is to find a problem that you're passionate about. Um, so again, like circling back to all these different entrepreneurial ventures that I had, one of them, one of my like failed adventures is when I was here on campus, I was in second year um, and I kind of stumbled upon this US company that was storing students um, furniture over the summer in the colleges in the US. And they wanted to bring that to campus into Canada. Um, and I'm like, okay, I'm mean, starting something, love it. You know, I, I was connecting with the CEO, really inspiring, really interesting. I was like, sure, let me launch that. Um, you know, so I got going, um, launched it here, you know, realized first off in London generally, I don't know if it's still the case, but there are 12 month leases if you're not in residence. So no one needs to store their stuff in the summer. So like didn't really validate that problem. Um, but I also like didn't really have a passion for storing things. Um, so I just didn't really put all that much energy or that much effort. It didn't go anywhere. I don't think it exists. That company, you know, was really successful. It was acquired by U-Haul in the US. And um, but it just wasn't like the problem for me. Um, and that would be very similar to a lot of the other like failed ventures that I've been part of, is that there just wasn't this connection to something that I'm passionate about. So for CLC, it really was this perfect combination of wanting to learn technical skills, but also a problem that was looking to really scale. Um, so when I worked in accounting, um, even that experience actually with college boxes, that storage unit, um, or, you know, I worked at Domino's Pizza and I worked with the franchisees, I had done a lot of, had a lot of experience in um, franchising and, uh, you know, sort of chapter model clubs on campus. And so, so there's a problem that can, you know, the to technical problem wanting to learn those skills. But for me, and that like business opportunity was that this problem to be solved, this, you know, um, need for more women at first to have technical skills really required scale. Right? It required us to run experiences, to run them everywhere. That's what we wanted to do. That's how we wanted to bring our idea to life. And so it required someone who had e, that passion around that idea, but also maybe like some experience scaling things. So all of a sudden, all of this random experience with franchising and um, you know the college boxes and others really positioned me, I think, really extremely well to then scale at the time it was called Ladies Learning Code across the country. Um, so pre-pandemic, we were in almost 40 cities across the country. We had these vehicles traveling. Um, and it was because I had learned and actually failed a lot, um, you know, along the way and all these other experiences that really kind of brought full circle this, 
you know, the passion and some of the expertise for me to build that idea. That's really, um, yeah, that's really awesome. And I, I love that point that you made about, um, the passion behind it and how you were saying that, like, you didn't have a passion for furniture storage. And I think that's so important. Like, it's one thing, like, sure, a business might be viable. It might be successful, but if you don't have that internal drive that kind of makes you wake up every day and want to keep working on it, then it's not the thing for you and that's okay. And you can move on. And so I think that's, that's really important. And I love that you kind of brought that up for sure. And I would just say too, like it can change over time. So at first I wanted to learn technical skills and coding myself. So I was passionate about that. Then, you know, we got to that point in the organization where we were looking to do this and support and help people like as many people as possible. So then I was really motivated by actually scaling the business, um, you know, focused on adults. And then a few years after that, I was part of the summer camp um, and it was for young girls. It was a girls learning code camp. And this young girl, like first day of camp, like fun summer camp, she came to out of the room crying. And she was saying things like, I'm not going to be good at math or I, I'm not going to do it. My parents are going to be disappointed. Like I'm, I'm not good at this coding stuff. And for me, that was then like this third kind of um, purpose for me. It was this critical incident where I was like, okay, if this young girl at this like really fun coding camp already thinks she can't be good at technology, like we need to fix that. And that was then for me, the catalyst to then get my master's in education to focus on youth. Um, so there's like three, there's more, but there's like three examples of where the same organization, same business, I've like refound my passion for in different ways. And I think that's the one thing I love the most about entrepreneurship is you're creating your your whatever it is you want to do, right? So the organization has grown along those interests, um, along, you know, community demand. And so I've found lots of different things. I've grown a ton. I keep growing, um, but I'm motivated at different points by different things. And I think that's just like the best part for sure. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting for sure. So another thing that we talked about yesterday was about validation and how entrepreneurship is very iterative and you have this idea and you have a problem, a solution, and you have to go back, you have to keep going out and talking to the market and getting that validation. So um, how did you go about validating kind of that initial problem that you had identified? And also, was there a point where you felt like, okay, I have enough validation, like this is something that I know, or there's enough information out there that I should just jump in and run with it? Or are you still validating to this day? Good question. So yeah, in the college box example, that was a perfect like textbook example of not validating <laughs> the problem or the idea. Um, so learned a lot from that. Um, the way that Ladies Learning Code, which was the organization when we founded it, it's now, now Canada Learning Code. Um, it actually started through a brainstorming session um, a month before our first workshop. So it was you know, built by the community for the community. So validating the problem um, and you know, first off by having 80 people on a wait list at that workshop or that brainstorm session for us was a really good indicator that there's some people that are interested in this. Um, and then through that, we got their feedback, the 80 people that were there about what that workshop should look like. We, you know, looked at other types of workshops that were happening in other parts of the world. And we never stopped doing that. And I think, you know, part of it also by solving a problem you're passionate about, um, it can be a problem that, you know, you, you're not maybe directly impacted by, by passion, but passionate about in our case, we were like also our end consumer at the beginning, um, because we weren't technical. We were, you know, we were learning. Um, so there was this, you know, huge benefit of also building things that would benefit us. Right. Um, but then you hit a point where you, you know, you're now too tech savvy. You're no longer a beginner. You know, you are not your customer anymore. And depending on the business you build, you may never be. And so we, you know, really prioritize talking to that learner or that end um, customer. For us, it's learners, it's volunteers, it's our team. Um, and we do that through, you know, surveys and focus groups and lots of the probably tools you've, you talked about. Um, and so that is like core. We're never done doing that. Throughout the pandemic, we had to pivot a ton. Like we are never done iterating. We're, um, you know, we're always looking at what it is that um, our, our sort of end user or end customer needs. And, and that changes as quickly as technology does. Um, but that's like really, really important. And I think the moment you do that, um, you know, and or you stop doing that, um, you start, you stop being relevant, right? Um, so I think it's really, really important. And then to your point around like, how do you know you have enough? Um, 
I think in terms of launching a business, in my experience, like you never are going to have everything. Like you'll never have all the information you need. You'll never have all the answers. You probably never have all the resources. Um, but I think for me, what I've learned is when you start to like hear these themes and, um, you know, maybe no new themes start to emerge or not substantially. When you feel like you've kind of have a really strong inclina inclination, things are starting to kind of converge in a direction. That's for us when we're like, okay, like we feel pretty confident we can, you know, dive in there because we're starting to hear a lot of similarities. Um, but then we also just keep agile. So we might do that and then that doesn't work. And then we are really comfortable and just like, scrapping that and doing something different. And so keeping really fluid and flexible, I think is important as well. For sure. Yeah, definitely easier said than done, but <laughs> it's great to hear that you guys are still um, validating. I think that's so important. I think all companies, um, even big corporations, they're always kind of collecting information and, and data to make sure that they're always iterating and innovating and, and all of that stuff. So switching gears a little bit, yesterday we heard from a lot of students um, that are very motivated by a social impact. Um, and I've talked with so many students more and more every day. I think that's such a driving factor for students these days. And I find that so inspiring and so amazing. And so obviously, um, Canada Learning Code, you are a not-for-profit and there is kind of that social impact aspect to it. So can you walk us through how you decided to go that direction and kind of went that not-for-profit route and what was that meaning of that social impact for you? A really good question. We, um, I don't think any, like myself, any of our founders, we ever thought we would um, have a nonprofit or a charity. I mean, I don't think we even thought we'd have a for-profit. Um, you know, we, when we started, we were really a loose collective of people trying to solve a problem. Um, but then I think, as, you know, you realize, okay, this, there's something here and you need to put structure in, in, in place. The way that I've come to think about it, because we've questioned at different points, whether, you know, when we were a nonprofit, if we should become a charity, if we should be something different. Um, and so the way that I think about it is like, what is the right structure to solve the problem that you want to solve? So for us, we wanted, our, you know, our workshops to be everywhere in Canada um, and maybe beyond that, but we'll have to rebrand. Um, we wanted to be everywhere. And so we, we knew though, also that core to our experience was this really high ratio of uh, mentors to learners. So we, for every four learners in our workshops, there's one person, one mentor working alongside you, which is like unheard of, right? That's not what we see in traditional classrooms. So we knew that if we wanted to create this experience and this experience and that mentor ratio was so core to the impact we wanted to have. Um, and we have this like theory of the change we want to create. And this is really core to it. There's research around it that's, you know, there's, um, you know, a lot of research around, you know, having people teaching you or mentoring you who look like you. And so just based on all of these things, it requires this like high number of, of, of mentors and volunteers. And so as we talk through the different opportunities and the different ways that our, our business could be formed or grow, we realize that it, it needs to be a structure that is, supports and, um, you know, helps the volunteers thrive because we could never afford to pay um, that many um, mentors um, in a kind of formal way. We just, we couldn't figure out the math on that as much as we did it. And that's where accounting was helpful. Um, so then what we talked through and what we learned was that as a nonprofit and sort of a volunteer focused social impact um, type of, of kind of structure would help us solve the problem best because we knew that that was so important to how we wanted to solve it. So that's really how we ended up as a nonprofit and a charity was just picking a structure that solved the problem. Um, I think there could have been lots of other ways. And, and now in Canada, there are lots of other organizations that are different types of structures for profits that are doing what we're doing, but they're doing it a little bit differently. And that's great. It solves a problem differently. Um, but we really, really focused on, yeah, you know, what is the right structure? Um, and I think any type of structure can have a social impact, um, you know, and that's really the purpose and the, how you do it is what's more important than maybe the way that it looks, um, you know, so I, I wouldn't, you know, you, you may, there might be considerations about what structure to choose to help solve the problem, but my advice would be just focus on solving the problem best. Um, and if you focus on that, like the other pieces will start to fall into place and aren't as important um, and shouldn't be the main driver about how you think about building um, the, you know, the business, the vision that you have. Yeah, for sure. I think we talked a little bit about this yesterday for you guys that were here yesterday about kind of the 
the viability of a, of a business idea and how the different paths it takes. But at the end of the day, is it a viable business? Um, and can you support the activities that you want to do? So I, I love that you kind of touched on those points and it, and it all kind of drives back to the problem, right? The problem that you've identified and how best can you solve that problem? And the structure kind of falls out from there. So that's, that's really insightful. Um, so I'd love to hear about your time at Western because obviously you were uh, here at Western, you are an alum. Um, I think you talked a little bit about some of the things that you did while you were a student here, but was there anything that really sticks out to you of things that you got involved with or different activities that you did that really helped you to get where you are today? Yeah, I, well, I loved, I loved being on campus, um, especially during homecoming. Uh, I, I think the most like, significant or the things that I think about the most. I mean, lots of friends that I'm still in touch with. We're definitely getting involved in clubs. Um, and I'm not just saying this because they're around the room, like literally that is like the most important thing I take away. And when I actually talk to some of my peers from, from, um, from university, they, they often like talk about that at me, you know, they're like, Oh, I wish I did what you did, which was get involved. Right. And like, you know, have that real life applied experience in running something and building something. Cause if you are interested in entrepreneurship, I really feel like it's such a good, um, sort of low stakes, no cost way of building the skills that are necessary. Um, so I was involved in a, a variety of different clubs. You know, one that I mentioned was the, the own fashion show co-directing. I was focused on the business side of it. I'm not artistic. I can't sing. I can't dance. I don't model. Um, but I was focused on sponsorship revenue, like the revenue side of it, costs, um, procurement, venue booking, like for a really large production relative to anything I had done before. And so those types of skills, negotiating, asking for money, um, you know, balancing your books, like there's such a good opportunity to learn. And I did that quite a lot. So that's, I think the, what I took away the most was just having, you know, tons of opportunities here on campus to do that, um, that you wouldn't otherwise. And so, you know, I definitely encourage if you are, um, you know, looking to get, experience coming out to things like this, being part of different programs, being part of clubs. Um, I wish there was like things like this when I was um, on campus, but there's lots of ways to get that experience that um, yeah, doesn't cost you anything because it does cost you down the road. <laughs> um, you know, so it's a good, it's a good way to learn, but actually get skills that are useful. Yes, definitely. And that was not a planted answer for sure. So yes, I'm so happy that all the clubs are here. So I really hope that you guys take that to heart because um, there's so many ways to get involved and all the, the, the entrepreneurial skills and entrepreneurial mindsets are definitely very transferable and you can learn them in so many different ways and apply them in so many different ways. So that's, um, that's really great. So another question about your entrepreneurial journey is that obviously entrepreneurship can be quite lonely. Um, I know you said that you had three co-founders, so you were fortunate to have a team with you, but it can be very um, up and down process and um, lots of highs, lots of lows. And I just would love to hear about what kind of support mechanisms or who did you reach out to, to help you kind of, especially in those early days? Yeah, really good question. Yeah, it's definitely lonely. Um, it can be for sure. Um, and and then I, you know, even I had co-founders, and it was awesome in the early days for sure. But even um, then, as the organization grow grew, ended up taking on the role of our chief executive officer, which kind of put me at the top of this hierarchy, so to speak. Which just does it does mean you know, and you you hear things like it's it's lonely at the top, and as like. Ugh, as that can sound like there is this element, um, you know, as you you build a business where you, you know, the, the things that you or the issues you have, you probably shouldn't and can't maybe share with everybody or the people around you might not know, or your, you know, your friends, your roommates, your partners are like, I'm done listening to you talk about these issues. Um, so it, it can be tough for sure. And I think that's actually very, very um, valid and something to prepare for. Um, I really focused on um, building a network around me of people doing similar things. Um, I kind of, at the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey um, post-graduation, um, I really would go to networking events and I would think, okay, let me like reach out to the, the most senior person in the room, you know, and think that's who I want to talk to. Right. Um, but then I actually started realizing that people who were like just a little bit further ahead in whatever they were doing were actually the most valuable. Um, the people who have like made it, they've got lots of great advice, like, and, you know, definitely have been there and you can learn an immense amount. And I have those people in my network as well. Um, but 
you know, those that had just done it, you know, six months ago, a year ago, like they have real deep understanding and appreciation having just done it. And so I found in that way, like looking at networking or looking at building my kind of mentor um, base, I really focused on people at different points in the journey um, and really you know, seeing everybody um, as, as an opportunity to learn something from. So that was always really important. Um, as is like setting boundaries. I wasn't great at that. I'm probably still not the best at that. Um, you know, especially when you love and you're passionate about something, like it's hard to not turn your brain off. Like you are constantly working through it. And I think that's also, um, you know, a real, a reality for a lot of entrepreneurs is like everything you see in the context. Like I came here and I was like, Oh, women in technology society. Like I should chat with them about doing a workshop, you know, like everything's in the context of my, of work. So just making sure you set boundaries, whether it's working out, watching TV, um, hanging out with friends, like just really, really prioritize doing that. Um, and trying to turn off is really important as well. Yes. I think that's a, a message that often gets lost with entrepreneurship is because there's this big glamour of like um, pushing yourself and working all the time. And I think that that self-care and taking care of yourself is definitely most important. Yeah, and it's a marathon, not a sprint, even though like it can feel like a sprint all of the time and there are milestones, like it is a marathon and the problems that you're passionate about, I'm pro I'm I'm pretty confident are like long in nature, like long-term, like, so I always say kind of play the long game as well. And, you know, for me trying to transform education, um, that's not going to happen, you know, in the next, you know, two, five, de 10 you know, decades, maybe, um, you know, the way that I would love to see that final vision. So you can't sprint every day um, or every week or every year. Like you really do have to see it as an endurance, um, you know, opportunity. For sure. Um, so this is my last question that I have, and then I'm going to kind of open it up to you guys. What is the biggest piece of advice that you would give for any of the students here? They're all just kind of just starting out. They maybe have a kernel of an idea. They're super excited and passionate about entrepreneurship. What would be your advice to them? Usually it's like just start, but I don't think that's enough. Like that's probably base advice. The thing that I would say, um, and maybe it's like a, where I'm at right now in, in my life is like to not be afraid to challenge the way that you see yourself or the narrative that you're telling yourself. So that's probably like the, the most difficult piece of advice that I've ever received, but the most like, um, significant and the most kind of like pervasive piece of advice I ever give. So I'll give a little bit of story to kind of add context to this. Um, we um, were in kind of 2017, we were at CLC, uh, had this opportunity. We'd been working really hard. We had just had Justin Trudeau code with us. And we had this opportunity to get a significant amount of money from the federal government, like 10 plus millions of dollars. And we were going to invest in this fleet um, of code mobiles, which exist around the country. And I remember talking to one of my board members, um, really prominent, like runs one of the biggest companies in Canada. And I remember talking to him and I was saying things like, oh, but I'm nervous. Like I'm an accountant. I'm so risk averse. Like, I don't know if I can do it. Like, I don't know if I can, you know, if I can um, like get the org to a place where it needs to go. And I kept saying things like I'm an accountant. Right. Um, and he stopped me and he said, listen, stop for a second. Right. Like you would never be here quitting your job, launching a company, scaling to 40 cities across the country, getting into a position where you have an access to that type of of investment if you were risk averse, right? That's a narrative that you're telling yourself, a story you're telling yourself about someone that you think you are based on your education, your work experience, your family, your background, you know, maybe who you were two, three years ago, but that's not who you are. And that's not how people see you. And I find that like, I'm constantly up against that. Like, all the time. Um, you know, I, I hold on to who I might have been, but we change so much. And I think especially in university, um, and as you enter your career, you're going to change a ton. You're going to learn like the amount that you learn in like a semester is like just overwhelming. And so that is like, I would say the, the biggest thing to think about is like, don't let you be in the way of you. Um, if you have an idea or problem, it's not too big. Um, you can shift the perspective and don't be afraid to challenge that, um, you know, and, and get that critical feedback about who you are. Because ultimately, and I think often we're like our worst enemy, right? And we're the ones standing away of the greatness that we can become. Um, and I think that's just so important to question and, and keep a pulse on always. I think that's just great advice for everyone in general, not just entrepreneurship 
but just good, great life advice. So yeah, that's awesome. Okay. I want to open it up to you guys. Do you guys have any questions? Um, Jake, why don't we start with you? Um, how did you go about hiring and scaling a team? Did you start with your friends, coworkers, or just other people in your network? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. Um, have So we're 11 years in, have had probably 200 full-time staff um, over that period of time and thousands of volunteers. So I've learned a lot and I've made a lot of mistakes, a lot of learnings and lessons. Um, I think we really focused on in early days on, you know, really sort of entrepreneurial, passionate folks who, you know, were filling gaps that we, we may have, um, you know, and we, we did hire some friends in our network. I think that's tricky. I mean, this might be controversial, but I do, I have had, um, like not the, the, some amazing, like our, like our co-founders, but not always the most amazing experiences. Like, I think that the advice I got once is like your business partner, um, may, may be the most important partner relationship that you'll ever have, like over your spouse. Um, or, you know, and, and the reason is because ultimately at some point, like money gets involved and you want to think that that's not going to change things. Um, but it, like in my experience, it can. And so I've really focused as much as possible to hire amazing people who are filling gaps. Um, you know, maybe there are people, you know, referrals in our networks, but, you know, I, now I would really caution away from hiring, um, you know, like at scale, like family and friends um, until you're at a point where you can have that like objectivity, um, you know, and maybe have, you know, HR and other things, um, but really focus on what are those gaps that you have? What are the skills that you need um, in order to do, in order to scale and grow? Did you do online job postings? Like tech, how did we do that? Oh, so yeah, we did a little bit of that. Um, a lot of, you know, we focused a lot on um, kind of broad awareness for our work, you know, and public relations and things like that. So we would have a kind of an always on place on our website where people were like coming inbound, but a lot of events like this, a lot of networking, career fairs, basically any way we could find um, really great talent, we would do it. We've done all of those things. Um, what's most successful? it really depends like on what you're looking for too. Um, you know, there are definitely some job boards that are like more curated. There are some communities that are more, you know, if you're looking for like someone who is really skilled in AI, you know, there's certain places you could go to find those folks, but I think all of those things and the more creative you can be about it, I think the probably the better the outcome as well. Thank you. Okay. So what made you like decide to switch your target market for your like business and also like how did you in general like feel about that? Like, was it yeah. stressful or? Like Rebranding from ladies learning code to Canada learning code. Oh, that's a good question. That was a, a well, it took a year. It took a year to actually rebrand. And it took about two years from the idea that we wanted to. Why we did that. Um, a couple of things. Like one, we started as ladies learning code and we wanted to focus on increasing the number of women in technology. Um, but then we realized that diversity in tech is beyond just gender. And I think that kind of coincided with, you know, a broader conversation that was happening in society, research that was coming out that helped educate us about, about that, right? So part of the reason that we wanted to rebrand or evolve, I like to say, is because we just realized that um, we had a kind of maybe too narrow view of the work that we wanted to do. Um, and then the other thing was more of a bit of a, like a marketing problem, so to speak. And, you know, so if you can think of a brand I would say is like a bucket, right? Ladies learning code as a bucket, like could get filled really quickly because it's focused on a very like targeted, very specific audience. So we had this like really big vision still do that all people in Canada will have the skills and confidence to harness the power of technology. That's big. So the marketing bucket of ladies learning code was too small for the vision that we had. So we like from a marketing perspective, we needed a bigger bucket that we could use to promote and to build awareness for our work. So there's kind of two, two things that were happening in that two year period. Um, and it was very controversial. So it took a year of talking to our community, our, our learners, our volunteers, our funders, our partners to finally get to a point where we brought people on board with that journey. Um, because as you could imagine, people, lots of people were at our organization because they wanted to focus on helping women access careers in tech, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, we're rebranding. People were like, well, do we not do what we are here for? Like, are we not here for the same thing anymore? And so it was very controversial. And it took me, I was 
you know, in communities, talking to people very regularly to bring people on board with this bigger bucket and bigger vision. Um, and then by the time we launched, it was like a non-event. No one said anything. Um, it wasn't exciting at all. But I thought that was a huge success because um, it could have been like really bad. Did you sort of do any planning before doing that? Like any, and were you like sort of scared and how did it like pay off in the end? Yeah, tons of planning. So um, yeah, and again, going back to this, like validating the problem or getting user research, like, you know, this was, again, we were, we were hearing this consistently from our community as well. We had lots of parents who had, um, you know, children that weren't, or weren't women, weren't ladies. We had ladies who said, that's something like an antiquated term, um, you know, or didn't identify, you know, lots of non-binary um, learners as well. And so we were hearing that, getting that research and that validation um, to be able to make that decision along the way. Um, and then again, I think because by the time we rebranded, no one really had anything to say. Um, it it was a success, um, you know, and people, you know, our work, we've grown, we've grown exponentially since we were ladies learning code. So I think it's also a testament to this bucket that we have and and like people, you know, buying into and being part of this bigger vision that fits better with Canada learning code, I think now. What's the biggest disappointment that you've had to face with um, running the company and things like that? And how did you navigate pushing through and still going on uh, with your vision? Oh. I'm like, ugh. like so, some days it's like every day there's something like, it, you know, but again, every day there's something amazing. Like it, that roller coaster, like the highs are highs and lows are lows are totally entrepreneurship. Some days I'm like 99% of this day is horrible, but like 1% is so amazing that it like overshadows all of the other 99%. Like that is totally my experience with entrepreneurship. It's, you know, I know it can't be like, well, 110% worth it. I don't know if you can be more than that, but yeah, it is. I think some of the things that has been really, really challenging, certainly leading and building an organization through the pandemic. Um, I think that was hard. We did have to, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, restructure and let some people go off our team. That was hard. Like people are why we are here. Our team are like everything. That's why we're here. Like, I, yes, I'm talking and, you know, leading the ship, but it's nothing without this team. And so Moments like that are really hard and, you know, you like you, you don't ever really get over them, um, you know, but I, you know, you do what you can. And so in those moments, you help people navigate land. People have landed, um, you know, in different places. But I think, yeah, there is this reality, um, you know, the people part of it. So, you know, businesses are people. And so um, as complicated as we all can be during like a global pandemic, really, really hard. Um, and if I think back to before that, all of the like lows, you know, most of them, there's times where, you know, funding or other things didn't come through the way we wanted to. But a lot of them do relate generally to, um, to people, um, you know, and that for us is just the biggest part of our business. Um, and you just work through, you do what you can, you, you show up every day with the same character and integrity and the same values, you know, you put people first and, um, you know, sometimes you have to make hard decisions, but what I have also learned is that it's never really that decision or, you know, the way that people see that decision isn't in that moment. It's like all of your interactions before that. So I just focus on showing up like to be authentic and, you know, caring about people every day and, and helping navigate through those tough moments in that same way as well. So back to HBA1 life, um, do you think that LPO courses and communication courses really contribute to entrepreneurship or, or not? So uh, leading people and operations, is that what you are? Or just any courses? Uh, as the leading people, yeah, leading people and operations. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yes, like I think that um, the case method as well in general, I mean, I'm biased and I, I love it. And um, I think it is helpful to just give you scenarios and like to think through how you might approach something. Um, in my experience, like entrepreneurship, there are lots of, um, you know, uh, books that you could read. Uh, you, there's lots of scenarios. There's lots of people you can talk to, but no one's done what you've done as you in this point in time. Um, and we're all sort of figuring it out. So I think the more that you can get that practice without having to like make the real mistake um, in your business when it might cost you financially is great. So I think you can learn a lot. And I think you can learn about the leader you want to be, the leader you don't want to be. Um, when I think about some of the jobs I've had at, out of, um, you know, 
university, like I've worked for amazing leaders and not so great leaders. And they've all been amazing experiences in the end because it helps you hone in what you want to do. So, yeah. And I think also a, a variety of topics and skills is also helpful. Like I would sort of characterize myself a bit of a, like, what people have said is like a bit of a Swiss army knife in the sense that I've done a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And so that helps you just think about like problems um, with different perspectives. So that's another thing in the book question. Um, some advice I, I also once got, which I really value is if you read a traditional type of book often, like go to the, I would say bookstore or wherever you purchase books um, and go to a section that you would never read, you know, and it's just about framing your perspective a little bit differently. So if you always read, you know, books about, um, I don't know, mechanics or business, like go read about art and design and like go do something totally opposite. So it's all helping just perform, inform your perspective. So I think it's really valuable. Yeah. Thank you. I was really wondering how you kind of had this like startup and I know you said that the idea is what matters to a certain problem that occurs where you could see and like the solution is kind of like your basic startup, but like, how did you actually start up? <laughs> oh, like, okay. Yeah. Like, like get something happening. Um, yeah. So I have two things I'm going to say there. One. Okay. So in actually starting up all the other examples, like you just start somewhere. So in our case for, for CLC or Canada Learning Code, we had a brainstorming session and we got a bunch of people, 80 people together. And we said, okay, what would it look like to teach people to code, women to code? And then we just set a date for a month later. And then we just like figured out what we would need food and, you know, we need a venue and we would need a marketing site. And like, you just one step at a time, like quite literally just like work through the different things that come your way in terms of like actually starting. I think, um, there's, you know, sometimes this, this idea that you need to have like all of these things done and anything, you know, you need a certain amount of stuff done. Absolutely. But, you know, things are always going to come up. So just like one foot in front of the other is important. Um, and then the other thing I would say um, that I've also come to realize, and I talk about my team often is like this other piece of advice um, is just what I say is like, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. So, you know, and what I mean by that is like, you're, you're the solution, the way that you solve the problem is probably going to change a ton and it's going to constantly change. And if you're running a really successful business, like you will want it, I think to change in response to the people that you serve. So for me, like, you know, pre-pandemic, we run every, we ran everything in person, all of our workshops. And I thought if we ever do anything else, like I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, I really fell in love initially with like delivering in-person experiences. And the pandemic was this like huge wake up call for me to say, you know, like realize that actually, no, like I was happy to run live online. I cared about just delivering these experiences to people. I wasn't like, you know, I, and I was forced to not be as hooked on the way that we did it. Um, and I couldn't for my team, we needed to like do things differently. So like, I think even more than anything, focus on like the problem that you want to solve or the impact that you want to have and how you get there is going to shift and change along the way. Is there any specific, like, event or situation that you were put in and that kind of gave you that like yeah you had that slow startup that you're talking about and it's escalating of course but there was like that this one point and you're like whoa we're actually an organization we have a plan we have what to do how did you know it was that point yeah. and how what did you do right after that point so for us it was like our third workshop it sold out in 30 seconds and I used to joke it like if sold out fast in the Beyonce concert. Like it was like this. So, and then we had people asking again and again and again, and we had just so much demand. So for us, it was like this moment where like, oh, like we probably just can't be a group of people uh, just like running workshops anymore. Like we've got money, like sitting here. Um, you know, I had like a ton of stuff um, in my home. Laura, one of our co-founders, her car was like completely full of things. We're like, we probably can't sustain this anymore. Um, but for us, we tried as long as we could to like, you know, with this idea of bootstrap, you know, and, and really just like be open to the, what people needed as opposed to like, um, formalize it too quickly. So for us, it just kind of, we just knew when like, we needed to put some structure around it. Like, you know, when it was taking over our lives and we were, you know, working full-time jobs on the side, like we just, we just came to that. Like we kind of just knew, um, when what was working, wasn't working anymore. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No um, what's the biggest challenge you had while scaling and how did you overcome it? 
scaling, scaling is the biggest problem, scaling, um, going from like one to two is like, like double, but like it's manageable. Two to four is manageable, four to eight. Okay. And then you go eight to 50, which is what we did. Um, very, very hard. You get to a point where you just don't have maybe like the structure that you people expect at an org that size. Like, I think that's probably one of our big learnings is we had a, you know, a larger brand than we maybe had like infrastructure for. So we were, and we were also hiring really talented people from a lot bigger organizations. And so, you know, they would come and be like, okay, like it's day one. Um, who, where do I go to get it? Uh, like get my laptop set up. And I'm like, well, you're the IT person, <laughs> you know, we just didn't have that. So that was hard. And so the, as much as you can plan for some of those things early on, like plan to scale, um, I thought we were, but not nearly like, you know, just think, think bigger than maybe where you are. So if you're thinking about like, you know, a solution, um, you know, maybe you, you need something like medium size now, but you're going to get really quickly to where you need the larger size solution, like a larger enterprise. So think about, think about and plan to scale. Don't set yourself short because you'll get there way quicker in my experience than you think you will. And then when you get there, you're like, oh, you know, that like that was just yesterday. And, you know, and, and that's been hard just to like navigate that. Hi, um, Melissa, nice to meet you and everyone else here. Kwam Zoheb, an HBA1 student. Um, my question for you is, uh, how do you preserve your mental health through the entrepreneurial journey? Because it seems like there's a contrast there. They're almost mutually exclusive that to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to put in 100 hours per week and just like grind 24 seven, right? So where does mental health um, come into play for that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, yeah, definitely I didn't have like the best boundaries I think at the beginning. Um, but, but I think it was okay. okay. Like I look back and, um, I think you just do need to know what you need and that can change at different points in time. So when I look back the last like decade or so, like there are points in time where, you know, I, I was just, I wanted to, to work, you know, my hundred hours a week or more. I was just a, a passionate about it, but there are points in time where I didn't. Um, and, you know, just had to really check in with myself and not feel guilty about it. Uh, I think is important. Uh, but also, yeah, just knowing, yeah, just really being in, in tune with what you need, like what I need compared to what my co-founders needed or what my partner needs. He's entrepreneurial as well, um, are, are very different. So like, you just have to listen to yourself and set those boundaries. You do not need to work a hundred hours a week to be successful by no means. Um, you know, if you don't want to, um, but again, every person is different. So that like, I did my yoga teacher training. I do yoga. I like watch TV, like, you know, those types of things. I used to read a book a week. Um, you know, whatever it is that you, you want to do, I think just make sure you put those in place and hold yourself accountable to it. Cause the thing is, no one's going to be like, did you do that? No, like nobody's checking in on you. So you just really have to have that self-discipline to do it. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. For entrepreneurs, it's pretty easy to find the problem, but how do you make people fall in love with your solution? Ah. Very good question. I think it, it does go back to like building what people want, right? And talking to them. Um, and I think if, if it is like um, that, like if you're really trying to get people to like buy what you have or use what you have, I would sort of say, is it really solving the problem for them? for starters, and it may, and there might be other things that are influencing the ability to make those decisions. So think about how you reduce friction in those ways. So, you know, is your, you know, if you have a software solution, is it not integrated in this area of the business? And so I think that's where like, just talking to that, you know, your end consumer is really, really valuable because you might think that it's something to do with what you've built and it's might not be right. It might be, you know, the approval that their business has, right. And it might be the structure that they have and they want to use what you have. They love it. It's better than the alternatives, but like there's some barrier somewhere else in the organization that's limiting their ability to use it. So you're not going to find that out unless you go and ask and figure it out. So it's like, what, what is that? Um, but I think if you're really trying to sell someone something, doesn't something to someone they don't want, then I would question the solution, but then understanding like, what is the friction in this process um, and kind of getting to the bottom of that. Yeah. Right. So would you say um, for like finding your value proposition, yeah. would you say that identifying your market is the strongest suit or making sure that your product stands out from someone else? Good question. Um, and there's probably like a, a more structured answer. I guess like find out who the end like end customer really is, I guess, right? Like, so in some of my experiences selling um 
you know, let's say to like, you know, uh, and I do some angel investing. So as an example, like one of our, one of the companies we, you know, we sell to, um, to like HR, right? But it actually, you know, and it, the recruiter, we think we're selling to the recruiter, but it actually isn't because they're not the decision maker. And so like we are building this solution and our sales funnel and tactics around this person who is going to be the one who uses it, but not the one who buys it. Right. So thinking about like, and really understanding like who's that decision maker. So it does relate to the value prop. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes like we, we can get confused about who's really like buying the stuff that we're selling. Yeah. That's helpful. That's great. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to try making it quick. Cause I don't want to like, you know, like, cause we're eating, but like, okay, I have a couple of questions. So my first is, so it's kind of like a theoretical thing, but you know how, when you started your business, it was directed towards women. Yeah. So you were talking about opening the bucket and everything, but what if you had made like you had opened it up, but you had subsections. So one for older people, one yeah. for women. Yeah. Like, did you ever think about that? And how do you think that would have affected your success? Yeah. And we do still have that. Like we do market um, certain, like to certain audiences in that way. So we do. Yeah. And that, that, again, there's like a bit of a difference maybe between the overarching bucket and then like what, who we're communicating to and how, um, you know, I use the example of youth and this going back to the, que the question before, right? Like we used to think that we, you know, when we ran camps, like we were talking to our, our campers, right? Like at the bin beginning and of our entrepreneurial journey, and we realized it's the parent, right? So our marketing was like very youthful for camps, very youthful and very like kid friendly. And then we're like, well, that's actually not enough information for a parent. A parent actually wants Who's taking care of my kids? What are your policies in place? When do they stop for lunch? Do you have aftercare, right? So this like, come learn camp and like beep, 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 robot stuff like did not appeal to the actual person that we were selling to. So we do have like different sub brands that are like catered more specifically to the audiences that we're like um, serving. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. No, I was, I just didn't know. So yeah, no, 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 it's okay. Yeah. Okay. So also Great question. you guys have a physical product you sell or no? It's a service. It's a service. Okay. Yeah. Um, and finally, like when you were like, you know, in school and everything, did you invest and what did you use for investing? If you did. Sorry, say that again. Like when, the, when you were in school, did you invest? Oh. What did you use? Do, like, now, did I invest my personal money and stuff, yeah. for example? Um, to some extent, yes. Um, I wish I did more because it compounds. So if you have any amount of disposable income that you can save, save it now. Uh, 10, 11, 12, 15 years makes a big difference. But when I was back there, I, I think I like did mostly just um, like mutual funds and GICs and things like that. I wasn't, I didn't very much invest in the stock market. Now I do invest as an angel investor in some businesses, um, you know, that are maybe related to things I'm passionate about. I'm still probably not as aggressive um, from an investment perspective as some people are. Um, for me, I, and this is about kind of understanding yourself too. I'm the type of person who purse, I take a lot more risk in my business than I'm comfortable with personally. And it's weird, um, but I, like for me to be successful, I think in, in my entrepreneurial ventures, I like to keep things like really just simple at home. So I just try to like keep my, you know, my expenses as low as possible, keep no frills. And like, so I just, I don't experiment with that. Like I keep that for my business and, um, you know, try to drive that. So yeah, that's, I have no good advice other than save now. That's my advice. <laughs> the Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum, Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.